I was a sort of a poor man's economic hitman, if you know that term. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about, like a John Perkins. Like you were that guy. Well, not he that was, guy. He was down the street from me. I didn't oh. know him at the time, but oh uh, wow! Uh, but at the same time that we were working in Ibeck to do that. Nelson Rockefeller was committing genocide in the Amazon Valley. I went on a 10-year solitary retreat during which I meditated and read and wrote. And I wanted to understand. I realized that if we don't make the transformation from rivalrous tribalism to collaborative holism, we're going to go extinct. And you get that your job is to sit down, shut up, and listen. And that triggered me and thought, I was like, wow, we live in a world where it's just designed where we're all replaceable. We're all just commodities. We could just be thrown out. We're, we're like standardized through the schooling system, through the education system. We got to go through a certain path. And I was like, and I just thought, how do we create a world where each of us is irreplaceable? My name is Albert Kim, and this is, you guessed it, Noetic Nomads. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, what the hell does noetic mean? Well, okay, so Greek lesson of the day, the word noetic comes from the word nous, N-O-U-S, which means mind. So basically, noetic nomads, people who are wandering some land up here. So why did I start this thing? What is this place? You know, we've lived in a world for a long time where we're like, oh, we got to listen to an expert, blah, blah, blah. They tell us what right opinion is. And then we're like, we just happily accept it like the domesticated puppies that we are. Well, newsflash, the world, it's going to sh So that way of thinking isn't working so much anymore they can't handle this increasingly complex world i'm thinking and many other people are thinking you know what maybe the experts maybe they don't know what the hell's going on you know what who knows what's going on the people who are actually experiencing the world the people who are, who are on the ground actually creating the world so i started knowing no magic because no more you know bound down to the intelligentsia the conoscenti it's about taking responsibility let's do some collective sense making let's get signal from all nodes in the network what i want to do with this project and who knows what happens in the future right i want to talk to actual real people smart crazy radical thinkers who know that there's something wrong with the world and know that there's a better way than whatever's going on right now i want to hear their stories i want to hear their ideas we can't just keep outsourcing our cognition to a small cadre of siloed specialists we gotta start doing this ourselves so i'm here to find all you smart heterodox thinkers out here artists philosophers and scientists technologists just regular people. So if you want to listen to some interesting people or ideas, or you're just curious as to what sort of dumpster fire this thing's going to turn into, hit that subscribe button and stay tuned. All right, peace out. Later. Recording. Okay. So hello, everybody. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the inaugural, inaugural episode, episode of, of Noetic Nomads. Nomads. Um, I have no idea what I'm doing. Hopefully, I don't scare you away, but uh, what I hope is that you guys get something as you guys, gals, everyone who doesn't identify as a guy and gal, we, uh, hopefully we can all come together and share the experience and get something out of this. Um, so please, so please allow me to introduce our first and hopefully not last guest to Noetic Nomads. 
He's a former international banker, school headmaster, a spiritual seeker and guide, someone who's helped me so much on my own journey, a husband, a father to many kids much older and younger than I am, and so many other aspects which I hope to get into today. Ladies, gentlemen, and everyone uh, non-binary, he is Robert Robin Lever. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, so uh, please, in your own words, uh, can you inform our lovely audience how it came to be that you made the acquaintance of this weirdo over here? Well, um, uh, it began with me, with Daniel Schmachtenberger, uh, the uh, cognitive scientist. Uh, who's, uh, I saw a couple of his pieces on YouTube and uh, was smitten by him. And he led me to Rebel Wisdom and Rebel Wisdom put me in a pod group with you. Oh my God, we have uh, such similarities. Literally, Schmachtenberger is the exact same reason that I found out about Rebel Wisdom in the first place. This is hilarious. And I actually found him because like, I'm, uh, as I told you before, I'm into like the biohacking and biohacking is like kind of like where you know, a bunch of young punks like me, they try to like upgrade their biology with like supplements and like electronic gadgets and stuff. Right. And he had, yeah, Daniel Schmachtenberger has his own company called, uh, um, oh my God, Neurohacker Collective where he makes supplements and stuff. So I found him on those health websites, on those health podcasts. And then after this whole pandemic, yes, which is still going on, I found him and then I joined Rebel Wisdom and that Rebel Wisdom was having a course. I was like, oh my God, Daniel Schmachtenberger is one of their instructors. And then beautifully, it lets us come together. And this is amazing. That's why we're both here. Um, so uh, what exactly was it about Dan Schmachtenberger that, that got you so interested? Um, it comes down to two terms, which he uh, either coined or stole. Uh, doesn't matter. The first was rivalrous tribalism as a description of what we're facing in the world today, and which has been going on for 12,000 years. Uh, and the second was collaborative holism, which is the alternative context to rivalrous tribalism. And when he started talking about it, I immediately uh, realized that if we don't make the transformation from rivalrous tribalism to collaborative holism, we're going to go extinct. We may go extinct anyway. Uh, we certainly don't have a lot of time, but it's a wonderful challenge and it's the way I want to spend my life. So that's what I've been doing. I've been yeah, doing it for a long time, mind you. Uh, I didn't get this idea, this concern about civilization uh, from Daniel. Uh, I've been concerned for a long time. And I've been looking for ways of uh, understanding it. And he was very helpful in that. As was as has rebel wisdom been helpful? Remember that email you sent me about a uh, collaborative uh, holism and from ten syllables. And uh, if I could just as a reminder, uh, you went into how rivalrous tribalism, hierarchy, patriarchy, and these uh, divisive isms were what was were like blocking the way to a collaborative holism. Uh, I, I'm ashamed to say I don't remember that, but let me. Uh, I, I will try to uh, reconstruct. Uh, my thinking on this, if you like. Uh, yes, yes, that'd be wonderful. Uh, a few years ago, I began to investigate the question, what is the problem modern society is facing? 
And uh, I gradually went deeper and deeper from uh, political issues to economic issues, uh, to national issues, deeper and deeper, until I came to the point where I uh, was uh, addressing the problem as a sociological problem. And my thinking at that point was some things have happened over the past 2000 years, which uh, uh, were very exciting while they were occurring, but may have proven to be quite negative. Uh, and they are, uh, number one, the radical increase in population. The population of planet Earth was about uh, 300,000, 400,000 in the year zero. And in the 2020 years, it's gone to almost 8 billion. So there is that huge increase in population. At the same time, particularly uh, from the 1400s, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, uh, there's been uh, an explosion of technology, science and technology. Uh, uh, and at the same time, uh, uh, as happens in all uh, modern societies, uh, our language has become increasingly more abstract. We, it's, it's, it's larger and it's more abstract, which means that uh, uh, abstraction, uh, as you know, is a left brain function, which means that we have gradually moved from a right brain orientation, which is a an inductive reasoning, uh, to uh, a left brain orientation, which is more deductive reasoning, uh, and uh, and to the point where we're now in imbalance, which you would expect with this radical increase in technology and the population explosion. Uh, and, and, and the fourth thing is the way in which we organize ourselves. And uh, uh, because we come from this tribal tradition, uh, we have organized uh, these 8 billion people according to nationalities now and, uh, and, and religious institutions and so on. Uh, we, have, uh, we have organized ourselves uh, uh, with a leadership hierarchy and the lead. And the leadership hierarchy uh, has become much more sophisticated with the technology and their uh, understanding of uh, psychology. Uh, uh, and, and so uh, it didn't, doesn't take a leadership hierarchy very long to realize that there's a fundamental conflict of interest between the leaders and the lead. And the leaders have to control the lead in order to get the leaders' objectives met. And they have become increasingly more sophisticated about doing this. Uh, and they have done it primarily by the creation of such things as neoliberal capitalism, uh, which are which are fundamentally uh, left brain functions. Uh, for the audience, let me just ex explain what I mean by uh, left brain, right brain, uh, deductive, inductive. Uh, my simple way of understanding inductive reasoning is uh, that therefore this, which is to say you look at the outside world, you see what's there and you uh, try to apply what you learn to your immediate life. Deductive reasoning on the other hand is this, therefore that, which is when you do experiments and you discover things and then you apply them to the world. For example, uh, there are all kinds of examples over the past 500 years, but uh, uh, you, you, know, you know, the steam engine led to the industrial revolution. Uh, 
The printing press led to uh, a vast quantity of books and uh, and uh, the combustion engine. Uh, uh, actually, I was born. Uh, I was born in 1939, which happens to have been uh, two years after the computer was started, and three years before the first atomic bomb was set off. So I was, uh, it was welcome to left brain thinking for me. Uh, and the world uh, has continued in that path uh, and become increasingly more so uh, to the extent that in the 60s with the, with the four assassinations of our, of our uh, really intuitive right brain leaders, it became patently obvious that the deep state, the ruling class, uh, intended to make this uh, a neoliberal capitalistic system. Uh, and so I, 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 I was in my 20s when President Kennedy was killed, early 20s. And so uh, this has been the, the dominant influence in my life and has challenged me to try to understand what is going on here. One of the things that went on that I've just learned about uh, recently uh, was the Powell Memorandum, which came out in 1971. Uh, Powell, two or three years later, was made a Supreme Court justice and, and uh, remained a conservative justice for 15 years. Um, his, his, the, the memorandum said essentially, uh, as briefly as possible, we must embrace fascism and become a fascist state. Uh, Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then he was made a Supreme Court justice. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, he was instrumental in the decision of a case between the Bank of Boston and another uh, entity, uh, which led to Citizens United, which led to the determination that money is free speech, uh, which has been catastrophic for our society, as you know. So. Uh, I've, I've long been interested in what is going on here, and uh, what I've come to realize is that this is a this is an issue of human nature. What has occurred and is continuing to occur, and and unless we unless we step back and look at it as a, as an issue of language and consciousness, the the real question is. Uh, you know, language is an ideology. Uh, it, uh, it dictates the way in which we think about things. And the way in which we think about things uh, is the primary influence on our consciousness. Uh, and so uh, we're all subjected to this process of acculturation. It starts when we're born and goes on for 20, 25 years uh, through parenting, uh, education, uh, and then uh, our initial immersion in society and culture. Uh, and and uh, they're teaching us, they're controlling essentially uh, by teaching us, they're controlling our consciousness. Uh, and the question that humanity faces, it seems to me, is uh, how do we take back control of our consciousness? Now, uh, uh, as you, as you may know, I, I've also been reading a lot about uh, what consciousness is. And, uh, uh, 
there was a wonderful uh, physicist named Bohm, who uh, was a very successful physicist back uh, in the 40s. And um, he became friends with this Eastern mystic Krishnamurti. And they had a lot of lengthy discussions, which I've been listening to with great interest. Bohm's contention, as a number of neuroscientists is today, uh, is that consciousness is, is a creation. We create our own consciousness uh, by the way we abstract nature and our environment. And uh, certainly, uh, that being the case, uh, a culture has a lot to say about how uh, we, we develop our consciousness and what our consciousness will be. And so, uh, you, know, you know, to make a long story short, I'm, I'm fascinated. I think this is a human nature problem. I think this is a problem that's based on consciousness. And, uh, and consciousness is, is a contrivance, is, a, is, is an invention. So the, the question is, are, are we as a species going to find commonality with our fellow man about what consciousness will be uh, in such a way that we can make the transition from a competitive rivalrous tribalism to this collaborative holism? Uh, as you may recall, Schmachtenberger talks about changing the value system from doing something for myself or my tribe or my family and, and, and having the entire value system be based on what we're able to do as individuals for life on earth, for the entire shooting match. And, and so uh, that's, a, that's a very exciting possibility to me. And, uh, and it's a, a very difficult undertaking because the people who have an investment in rivalrous tribalism uh, also have all the guns and uh, all the power and are uh, least scrupulous about its application. Uh, and so they're a challenge. Uh, this uh, entity that I'm in the process of starting with a few other people called 10 Syllables, uh, 10 Syllables incidentally is a, is a, is a is an effort at humor. The ten syllables reply to uh, apply to uh, the transformation of civilization, and they also apply to caterpillar, chrysalis, butterfly. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. I did that. Yeah. There are ten syllables. Ten in syllables. Each. Yeah. And uh, and uh, actually, the transformation that we're talking about is very similar to the transformation that the caterpillar goes through because he knows nothing of what's going on. He in fact goes to war against the cells of the chrysalis mm. uh, and is defeated by this overwhelming onslaught uh, and, and, uh, and perishes and turns into uh, the, the, uh, the cellular construction of the chrysalis and then the butterfly. And, uh, the caterpillar, as this is beginning, the caterpillar, very much like mankind today, is desperate, uh, confused, eating ravishly, consuming ravishly for reasons he doesn't fully understand. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that's where we are today. So uh, Ten Syllables is trying, to, uh, is trying to gather people. I don't want to get ahead of you. Can I? Should I? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. That's fine. Uh, Ten syllables is trying to gather people into small communities around the world, 
in which they can, well, let me back up for a minute. One of the things that's happened in our society is that we have become a society of addicts. We are addicted to consumption and we are suffering from Stockholm syndrome. Uh, yes, we are, yeah. By which I mean that uh, nobody has castigated, much less imprisoned George Bush for lying us into the Iraqi war and into the war against terrorism uh, or, 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 or prosecuted him for using torture to get people to confirm his lies. Uh, nobody, is, uh, nobody prosecuted Wall Street uh, when they stole trillions of dollars from, uh, from the American economy, from the American taxpayer, basically. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're not calling any of these crimes what they are. Uh, this issue of these wars in the Middle East, I mean, uh, a little inductive reasoning would tell you <laughs> they're not a good idea. You know, yeah. we become uh, bystanders. We're just we're just watching the spectacle, and like we're disempowered. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, uh, we're suffering from uh, uh, we're addicted. Uh, and I, I I see the Big Ten is going to have a football season after all. <laughs> They're the richest uh, uh, group of teams in the country, uh, and that's feeding our addiction. You know. Uh, you give most Americans a, a cold beer and, a, and, and an NFL game, and they're all set. Uh, and, and we've got the Stockholm Syndrome. So we've got to, uh, the idea of 10 syllables is to get people into small groups and to start them on the process of mending themselves and one another. And uh, the essence of mending is the essence of healing, which is to listen to elicit and listen to people so that they feel uh, accepted enough to begin processing their conflicts. Uh, so we're going to try to do that on an individual level, and then we're going to try to uh, mobilize these groups to begin the process of withdrawing from the tribal hierarchy and its institutions. Uh, from little things like uh, taking your mortgage, which may be held by some Wall Street investment house, uh, back and placing it with a local uh, co-op uh, where they don't sell the mortgages, that kind of thing, uh, to, uh, to refusing to participate in many of the institutions which, uh, which are, are serving uh, the uh, tribalism, the hierarchy, and, and, and at the same time, building alternative institutions. For example, building digital currencies, localized digital currencies yes. to uh, replace the dollar. Uh, starting uh, uh, public banks like the Bank of North Dakota, which is incidentally the only public bank in the country. They know that we're onto something with public banks. Hmm. Uh, and it's the only public bank in the country, but it is more profitable than any of the private banks as a in terms of a return on capital. It's much smaller than those Wall Street banks, but in terms of return on capital, it's the most profitable bank in the country. 
and uh, you know, students in North Dakota can get their student loans for half the interest rate. Mortgages are lower, business loans are lower. Mm -hmm. So uh, doing undertaking, and there are people all across the country who are trying this, but thus far we've been thwarted uh, by the interest of, of Wall Street and the big banks. Uh, so these are the kinds of things we're going to be withdrawing from and beginning to engage in. And it is my hope that once we have begun the process of healing ourselves, we, uh, we will become radically more effective. Uh, part of the process of healing ourselves is to become, is to develop self-understanding and uh, personal integration, by which I mean getting into consensus so that your effectiveness is not uh, impaired by inner conflict. Uh, so the, the process of self, uh, developing self-understanding and getting integrated will increase effectiveness so that we can begin to achieve uh, things in the areas of withdrawing and creating the alternative context. Uh, uh, I mean, if I could just interject here, I mean, like, there's so much, you're like, woo, stream of consciousness. You went to like Al Albert mode, just like, just coming out. So yeah, that was amazing. So much there. I mean, you talked about currency, you talked about um, the collaborative holism, how we have to break out, rewild, undomesticate. And like, that's why, you know, we're into the game B world. And um, I would just, they just had at the store, they just had an event with uh, future thinkers, which is a couple, Mike and Yuvi, who were actually building a, um, a smart village in, uh, in, in the countryside of Canada. And like I said, they're gonna have digital. I asked them a, a question: Are you gonna have digital currency? They're like, yes. I was like, yes, back. Oh, like, great. Exactly. So I mean, like, I'm very excited about you know all this stuff happening. And 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 you talked about I read about your uh your 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 usage of sociocracy and how we could build new systems where it's not hierarchical. Um, I just and we go circle back uh, around on that. But I want to go back because like. This is, I remember in our intro uh, Sense Making 101 session that we were giving our little intros and I couldn't help but have my ears perk up when you said that you were a friend of the Rockefellers. I don't know if I'm misremembering that, but like, I think that's very interesting, especially what you're talking about the deep state. And like, if I recall that you were an international banker and then something happened and then you're like, you know what, I'm out of here. There's something wrong. So if you could just uh, oblige us and bring us back to the beginning and how your journey started. Sure. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fairly prototypical middle-class American. Uh, I was born into fairly humble origins. My father was a salesman in business. My mother was an artist, uh, which meant that I had an early combination of right and left brain reasoning. Uh, my father was gone in my early childhood and I spent most of my time with my horse and uh, dog or with my mother and sisters. Uh, and my mother introduced me to art and she and I would uh, spend a lot of time making art together. When I was about 12, my father came back into my life and assertively took it over and uh, scorned my efforts as an artist and uh, drove me to become a high achieving uh, yanged out leader. 
And uh, he got me into an exclusive prep school from which I went to Brown University. Hmm. Uh, this is interesting, actually. At, at Brown, I majored in English literature and minored in art. And when Brown ended, I went to business school at Dartmouth. Uh, so I flip-flopped back and forth. And, and, and the reason I went to business school was because I had been sold on the idea that you had to lead a practice, you had to be competent and accountable and practical uh, and know how to get things done, which would prove your value in business. Um, yeah, real quick. I mean, that's a big parallel because I got my major in, in business and engineering, but my minor was in philosophy. That's my love. <laughs> that's why, you know, and it just like, oh, I got to get the practical stuff where I'm like, this is my love. Like, what, you know, can I cultivate this a little bit? So I completely get where you're getting from. Yeah. Where you're coming from. Yeah, I know you do. I've, I've noticed that about you, that we are kindred spirits. Yes. In that. Uh, well, so I, I went into business uh, and, and, uh, 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 the Rockefeller family had many uh, members attend Dartmouth. And so uh, Nelson Rockefeller's son, Rodman, interviewed at the Tuck School, the business school. And I uh, was offered a job in the Rockefeller Company, the International Basic Economy Corporation. Uh, and I, uh, I took the offer, delighted, and was sent to South America uh, uh, and had a wonderful time. And I spent uh, short periods of time, short visits with uh, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, his son Rodman, and uh, subsequently with Lawrence Rockefeller uh, when I became a secondary school headmaster in Woodstock, Vermont. He lived there and he was a donor to our school. Uh, and so I knew all three of them a little bit uh, Rodman probably better than the other two, uh, but I knew them well enough to know that they uh, were very gracious and charming and uh, <clears throat> wanted the best for humankind uh, uh, with the qualification that no matter what they did, they would retain and increase their wealth and power and control. Uh, This was the first time I heard about the new world order, about one world government, which they talked about as inevitable. And they talked about uh, population control as inevitable. Uh, but in the nicest ways, those of us uh, who uh, were not <laughs> exterminated, were going to uh, lead much better lives. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I, I knew them a little bit and I liked them all. Uh, they were unfailingly fun to hang out with. Uh, and uh, 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 I left IBEC because I was in South America and uh, I discovered that uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who had been under Secretary of State for Latin America, uh, was committing, uh, my company was set up to help develop the economies of the countries in South America and around the world, underdeveloped countries, by such things as uh, chicken farming, uh, supermarkets, uh, mutual funds, get the money out of the mattresses and into the economy, those kinds of things. Uh, but at the same time that we were working in IBEC to do that, 
Nelson Rockefeller was committing genocide in the Amazon Valley in order to get the oil out under Standard Oil. Uh, and so when I realized when I realized what I was dealing with, I left I left them and. Uh, through a strange set of circumstances, I became an international banker for the Bank of Boston, which was a wonderful institution. And I did that for a while. I was a sort of a poor man's economic hitman, if you know that term. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about, like the John Perkins. Like you were that guy? Well, not he that guy. Down, he was down the street from me. I didn't oh. know him at the time, but oh uh, wow. I was doing basically the same kind of thing. Uh, we were lending money to people who would not be able to repay it. Then we were selling the loans to the federal government and they were foreclosing and taking the asset or cutting deals uh, that suited our government, our foreign policy. Oh, just to circle back, um, just clarify. So like, you mean John Perkins, you were working at the same time, but he was in like another country? No, no, uh, he was down the street. He was also literally down the street. He worked, yeah, he worked for a, <laughs> an engineering firm. Wow. This firm did the, uh, uh, did the economic models, uh, modeling that oh, yes. uh, uh, enabled countries to get federal loans from our country. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, what happened in many of those was that the, uh, the oligarchy of these recipient countries stole the money and ran off to Switzerland and leaving the debt on the people's hands and the people couldn't make the payments and so foreclosure ensued. Uh, and I was coming back from, I was at a UNIDO conference actually, uh, where I was a speaker. And I was coming back from that one day and uh, I, I, I looked in the mirror of the men's room on my airplane and I realized uh, my father had an expression that he, a derogatory expression that he used on people he particularly didn't like. And it was that uh, he would say that they had become as shallow as a plate of piss. And I looked in the mirror. My father was deceased by then. I looked in the mirror and I realized that that had happened to me. I was wearing my Kilgore Stanbury tailored suit and I looked pretty sharp, but I was totally vapid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Inside, rotten outside. Ooh, pristine, right? Yeah. And so uh, my reaction to that was to. Uh, I'd always been interested in psychology and the way we uh, function as human beings. And so I, I got offered the job of uh, the director of a proprietary mental health clinic. And I took that. And that was so wonderfully uh, educational. And then I got involved in education uh, and was on a couple of boards and uh, at the Woodstock Country School voted to close in Woodstock, Vermont. And so I made them an offer uh, to take over. And uh, I did that for four or five years. Uh, and that was, uh, I, I, had, I have always been interested in how we learn uh, and the optimal conditions for uh, learning who we are and uh, learning how to get integrated and more effective. And so I worked on that all during that time. And at the end of that time, uh, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do next. And uh, a friend loaned me their cottage up on Campobello Island. And I went up there alone. uh, And I started meditating. I had never meditated, but my students had always 
uh, mocked me for not meditating. Uh, <laughs> and so I started, uh, and uh, I started uh, uh, 20 minutes in the afternoon, and then uh, you know a month went by, and I was meditating essentially all day long. Uh, and I had an experience, uh, a miraculous healing uh, with a very small bird. And uh, it made me, it brought me to the conclusion that I wanted to stop running things completely. Uh, management, management is a tough job because you have to manipulate everybody all the time. You have to manipulate your, your employees, your customers, your board members, uh, your bankers. I mean, it's, it's just continual. Uh, and uh, it's not, it, I, I felt it's not the way I want to lead my life. And it's, and it's true uh, with nonprofits too. I mean, I had to manipulate my students, my faculty, my building and grounds people, my board, uh, uh, Lawrence Rockefeller to give us more money. I mean, it was just unending. Mm. And I wanted to get away from that and just shut up and pay attention to life. Uh, and that's what I have been doing since 1980. And uh, uh, after I, 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 I went on a 10-year solitary retreat during which I meditated and read and wrote. And I wanted to understand. It was a wonderful time. I went back through a number of philosophers uh, from the very earliest uh, right up through Jung and uh, Freud and Asagioli and uh, all those guys. And uh, it was a great time. I read, I, I, would, I would get a book, uh, buy a book, and I would start reading it. And if uh, I got so I could tell whether the guy was a fake or not. And if, he, if I discovered that he was, I just threw the book aside and picked up another book. And I, and I was able to uh, put together some really wonderful ideas about how people uh, can develop self-understanding and personal integration. Oh, real quick, can you inform our audience of what that hard and fast rule you informed me of how you know they're full of shit? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, the first thing is uh, they have a propensity for the, con the consonant but. Exactly. <laughs> and there is no such thing in, as but in nature. There is only and. Mm, exactly. And uh, their, their, their propensity caused them to exclude and to uh, claim superiority. Uh, and there is no superiority, you know? We're all winging it here. Yeah, I saw that in myself. I was like, I'm writing something and then I write, but I'm like, oh no, Robin told me I shouldn't do that. And then I'm like, ah, the, the mindset changes. I, so I completely understand where you're coming from. With yeah, you. yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, I, I would I would throw them away, but at the, at the same time I, I discovered some treasures of guys who did, uh, were not very well known but were really enlightened. Uh, so it was a very rich time. And after ten years, uh, I I began to get invited to speak, and I uh, developed my course in. Uh, self-understanding and personal integration. And it's a course, my younger students named it, the course in figuring out who you are, what you should be doing with your life and how you should go about doing it. And that's, that's, a, that's a great description. And so I did that one-on-one uh, -on -one and uh, 
uh, about 20 years ago, uh, I had a friend at Harvard Business School who taught entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School. And he got me involved in a, uh, in a, a seminar uh, for people who teach entrepreneurship from around the world the Price for Absent Seminar for Entrepreneurship Educators. Uh, and that was wonderful. Uh, and I, uh, I, I gave them a paper about right education to help entrepreneurs become more integrated and thereby increase their success rates. Uh, you know, the, uh, the success rate is about, uh, I think it's uh, 10%. Or of new ventures still exist after five years. Uh, well, you know, uh, if you could increase that to 20%, you would double it. And uh, a little bit of personal integration would certainly achieve that. The problem was, and is, that entrepreneurs are not inclined to look inside. And you have to look inside to develop self-understanding and personal integration, to figure out who you are and what you really want to be doing with your life. Uh, and uh, they, many of them, these bright young men, uh, I didn't have any women, many of them would sign up for my course and be very enthusiastic so that they could use what I was going to teach them to uh, be more influential with venture capital sources. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> game B, using game B for game A. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, they regressed into game A. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's a basic antipathy between, between business and psychology, always has been. Hmm. Uh, and the reason is that business, you know, it's been glorified, but business is very hard. Capitalism is very hard on those who practice it. Uh, and most of them stay in denial of that fact uh, in order to uh, amass ever more money and power. But it takes a toll. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, the great economist and uh, ambassador to India under Jack Kennedy, once wrote a piece in the New York Times in which he said, pay CEOs whatever they want because they have an impossible life which was very interesting. And so uh, that led me into uh, thinking about what's going on in the world. And that led me to 10 syllables. Have I answered your question? Yes, yes, yes. That's beautiful. Uh, so much there. Um, I mean, like, I, I like to talk more about uh, some of your, your, your learnings and some of the teachers that you found uh, to be really helpful for you. Um, I looked at your blog post. Yes, I did my research. And this is part here about truth that if you'd allow me, I like to quote, what is truth? As any neurologist will test, if there is such a thing as truth, we humans sure don't have the capacity to recognize it. As any linguist will tell you, we humans learned abstraction at about the same time we learned language, probably 30, 50,000 years ago. And we've been abstracting at an accelerating rate ever since to the point where we've reified many of our most common abstractions. We've made our symbols more real than the things they symbolize. Truth is such a reified abstraction. And I love that part, especially now in the current age where it's like, everyone's like, oh, post-truth era. And I'm like, I just laugh, post-truth era? <laughs> when were we ever in the truth era? This is weird. And like, it, like the whole thing about truth being a reified abstraction, it dovetails with a Baudrillard's work, 
with the hyper real and the real versus the simulacra and the simulation. Uh, so I was wondering if you could go deeper on truth and maybe some of the thinkers and concepts that you found really helpful. Gee, you know, uh, I'm thinking of uh, my initial sources on my thinking about truth. Uh, well, if I could just do, uh, give you a prompt. Just, just let me finish. I had to say that okay. the first one was Ram Das. Ram Das. Okay. Uh, who was the one? He's recently passed away. Wonderful man. Uh, and he, uh, I think he wrote a book called The Only Dance That Is, which I read when I was in my 30s. And I was profoundly moved by it. Uh, and the second one was I went through Est with Werner Erhardt. And, uh, and read everything I could about what he was uh, trying to do with that program. Uh, and I came away feeling he was onto something, but he had, uh, he had personal uh, problems which uh, curtailed his ability to succeed. Uh, but I think my foremost influence was uh, Mohandas K. Gandhi. When I was a child, my mother uh, who was uh, an autodidact, uh, uh, she would take uh, three years to study Gandhi, for example. <clears throat> and while she was doing it, she would lecture us about who he was and what he was trying to do. And uh, uh, he, he, he was a seminal influence on me. Uh, he... Uh, he introduced me to the idea of attend to the means and trust that the ends will take care of themselves or not, as the case may be, which uh, and the means are taking responsibility for what you create out of your life. Uh, and that means taking responsibility for the things that you uh, choose to describe as true. So he was a he was a profound influence. Uh, sorry, I, I I interrupted you a minute ago. No, uh, no, because I was just like, cause I've noticed that uh, a lot of your uh, writings that you talk about uh, Alfred Korzybski, and I had no idea who he was, right? And then I did a little bit of research. Oh, he's like, oh, he's the guy that came up with the 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 maxim: the map is not the territory. Oh, so he's that guy. So uh, so I'd like to know like how his work had uh, impact on your personal philosophy? Well, for those of you watching this uh, who don't know who he was, uh, he was a, a, a very famous linguist, I think about 100, 100 years ago. <clears throat> and uh, uh, his, his, his basic message was, what you say a thing is, it isn't. Mm. He was making the distinction between the unknowable reality, which we don't have uh, the sense or the intelligence to know, as opposed to our abstractions of that reality, which we uh, can create and adopt. Uh, and part of the game of language is that you're not allowed to remember that you're making up symbols to describe an unknowable reality while you're doing it. Otherwise, you couldn't play the game. And so we pretend that our symbols are the real thing. And our symbols, being abstractions, are very limited. Uh, 
And so they, uh, not only are they, do they not describe the real thing, but they're subject to manipulation by those who uh, want you to take greater control over your consciousness and want, want to direct you in one way or another. Uh, uh, the thing that got me about uh, Korzybiski was he told a story about uh, he went into his lecture hall one day and uh, he told his class that he had been given a box of cookies, homemade cookies, mm-hmm. and he uh, handed them out and people ate them. And then he explained that they weren't, in fact, they were not cookies, they were dog biscuits. And by, that was his way of pointing out that, you know, what you believe is your truth. <laughs> oh my, yes, yeah, so, I mean, if I could just interject, I mean, like, I just read, uh, I just read a whole bunch of, uh, uh articles and, and books recently on that topic where it's just, I'm reading a book on marketing right now. And like, one of the examples is like, they give a bunch of hoity-toity people, right? Uh, pate and dog food. They told them both it was pate. They could not distinguish what was pate and what was dog food, which just shows how like, it's, it's ridiculous. Like people just, they just buy into the concept and this, this, this makes our consumer society, like it makes it what it is because we're just told we're supposed to like this. Oh, I like this. It's like without any thought of what, of what truly it is, if there is such a thing, you know. Uh, I want to I want to segue into what we have to do here. Oh yeah, sure. Because I think it's uh, I think it's uh, appropriate. Uh, I mean, if I could just do a, a, a prompt, because I'm I was right about to get into this. So, like, you are. Would you like to tell the audience how many years young you are? <laughs> I'm 81 years old. She, yeah, he's 81 years young. He's been he's lived through fourth four generations. And now the way the reason why this is like very key is because I don't know if uh, if the audience or yourself, Robin, have heard of the Fourth Turning, uh, the book by uh, Neil Strauss and Neil Howe. Basically, how where we go through cycles and there's like, there's through four phases and we're entering like the fourth phase, basically chaos, right? So. You basically, Robbie, you're, you've basically lived through those fourth phases and wanted to know, like, with what's going on with Trump and everything, like, how would you describe the current state of the U.S. and the world compared to past generations? And, like, what do you think we got to do to get out? Good. That gets me, that leads me perfectly. <clears throat> um, well, let me start with this. Uh, I want to hold this up. Uh, this, uh, I use this in my course. This is a description of how the human brain and psyche work. Uh, uh, On this end, you will see an event. The event is technically unknowable in its completeness. Uh, But we uh, have an experience or may or may not have an experience of the event. Uh, And the experience consists of uh, can you see this? Of perceiving yeah. the event yeah, and interpreting. Bit, yeah, just, uh, pan out a little bit. Pan out a little bit, a little bit more, and lift it up a little bit. There you go. Yeah, keep it right there. Awesome. Uh, what happens is we, uh, if we perceive uh, the event, anything about the event, uh, we take it in and it goes into short-term memory, long-term memory, depending upon the importance we assign to it. 
and then we uh, interpret it. Uh, this is the experience element, uh, the combination of perception and interpretation of perception. Uh, and then we respond in accordance with our interpretation. Now, the big, the big issue here is where that vertical arrow touches the process. Oh, I see. The question becomes, when we interpret our perception, what do we base our interpretation on? Now, all we have as human beings is our past. Our past interpretations, our past sensations, and our past responses, and our imperfect memories. And so we're winging it when we go from perception to interpretation and then to response. Now, this is where acculturation comes in. We are taken over as children and we are told how to think and uh, our consciousness is molded by our parents and the institutions we are involved with. And so the question becomes, before you interpret, are you going to react to all you've been taught as part of your acculturation? Or are you going to proact and create an interpretation which suits you better than the learned interpretation? Now this, this, is, this is the struggle for individuals to take responsibility for their interpretations and it, it is the struggle for mankind, for humankind, for civilization. Uh, we have a lot of bad precedents in our training through our acculturation to rivalist tribalism. They're not serving us and we are not looking at them. I mean, how, how sane does one have to be to know that the international monetary system is a joke? We, the world debt is something like $250 trillion. The world, the world, Especially the pandemic assistance, <laughs> printing money. I, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh my God. It's not going to you and me. You no, know? not at all. Uh, and then, you know, the, the gross domestic product of the planet is only something like $80 trillion uh, on which only the profit or, or say 10% or $8 trillion is available to pay off that $250 trillion in debt. It's no, there's no way it's going to happen. Yeah. So anybody, anybody with any sanity at all would have looked at this uh, trend uh, over the past primarily 50 years, since maybe 70 years since World War II, uh, and see, this isn't going to work, guys. We got to do something differently here. So, I mean, th there's an example. Uh, this unending war that we're engaged in, uh, the history of all civilizations tells us that uh, civilizations in decline go to war and try to uh, steal other people's exactly. uh And they run out of money and will. Uh, th that isn't stopping us. Uh, and finally, the destruction of the environment. Uh, how sane do you have to be to realize uh, whether this is a cycle, a natural cycle in the uh, environment or not, uh, the possibility that human beings are influencing it is sufficiently onerous that a basic 
practical business approach to this would be to do something to find out and to minimize the effects of our destruction and pollution and depletion. It just makes common sense. But no, we're not we're not able to mobilize to do that. And it's because it's because, you know, uh, it's because we are reacting to the way we've been taught, the way countless generations for 15,000 years since the beginning of the agricultural revolution have been acculturated. Mm. And uh, I don't know whether uh, you know E.O. Wilson, uh, the world famous biologist. Uh, he's very clear that tribalism is going to do us in unless we do it in. And tribalism, he also points out this fascinating uh, element of tribalism. He said there are three things or three components to tribalism. The first is you have to subscribe to the origination myth. Now you think about this country and the myth. Mm, yeah. uh, these founding fathers were determined to set up the perfect democracy. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Except for the fact that black people had to be slaves or exterminated and women couldn't vote. The only people who could vote were male, white male property owners. Otherwise, it was a nice little democracy. Yeah. I mean, like, like, like that's what they're doing right now. Like, this is what the woke crowd is doing. They're trying to replace the 1776 narrative with the 1619 narrative. But they're both, they're both, <laughs> neither of them are the whole truth. You know, they have elements of the truth, but it's just like, yeah. neither of them are, are the right thing. Well, the first thing was that you had to buy, if you were going to be a member of a tribe, you had to buy the origination myth. The second was that you had to uh, acquiesce to tribal authority, which means... You had to subordinate yourself as the lead to the whims of the leadership hierarchy. And the third was that you had to discriminate against outsiders. These are the three elements of tribalism that are driving us to extinction. And why we're not waking up and understanding that. This is not rocket science. Uh, but some of us are. And so uh, it's so exciting to be part of that group. Uh, and I, I, I uh, applaud this effort that you're making, because I think fundamentally, if you're, if you, <laughs> since you invited me on your show, I, I, I think I'm, I'm assuming that, uh, uh, that you're really interested in this overriding issue of uh, transforming civilization into something that's habitable. Yeah, you're damn right. Yes. Uh, and uh, how old are you? Twenty-five. <laughs> Robin, did you forget? I actually just had my birthday. I'm. You're close. You're off by eleven years. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't look. You know, I'm, I'm I'm Asian. What do you expect? Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're young enough so that. Uh, yeah, my soul is. I still have the soul of a fifteen-year-old. Yeah, so it's okay. fifty years yeah. to live with a mess we've created. Yeah. And. Um, I have children from uh, uh, from 60 to 16, mm. and uh, I'm really uh, I'm really wanting to at least model engagement in the effort to fix this shit show for my children. Whether we succeed or not, it's uh, it's a great way to spend my life. Exactly. You got to at least try. That's it. I mean, I love that so much. Um, 
And it's, I was at a Stoa session uh, recently with Peter Wang. He's a physicist. And um, he was talking about like mental models and how people, you know, use it to uh, navigate reality. And uh, one of it, he brought up like capitalism and alienation. And specifically, he talked about how like, you know, like people and things and products, they're fungible. They become commodities. They become alienated. They become objects. The uh, I-it relation rather than the I-thou relation. And that triggered me in thought. I was like, wow, we live in a world where it's just designed where we're all replaceable. We're all just commodities. We could just be thrown out. We're, all, we're like standardized through the schooling system, the education system. We got to go through a certain path. And I was like, and I just thought, how do we create a world where each of us is irreplaceable? And the moment you think of that, I'm just like, you have to change everything. So I just wonder if we could just explore this, like, what would that world look like where each of us is re- irreplaceable? We cannot be replaced. This is interesting because I just had, uh, I just had, I was walking yesterday in the, in the forest and I encountered uh, a, a fireman and we had a conversation about this very subject. As oh, we were, wow, synchronicity. In the forest. Uh, he was a really bright guy and a wonderful guy. And what we came to was this. Uh, you know, I mentioned that I was born after, just after computers were invented and before the atomic bomb. Uh, I was a, I was the product of a of a father who had uh, survived the depression because he could sell, and uh, uh, he had very strong feelings about competence. And uh, by the time I was six years old, I was feeding and mucking out for my horses. Uh, I knew how to take care of the lawnmower. You know, uh, this was a very important thing, not just f- with my father, but with that whole generation. Uh, and, uh, and I've always valued that. And I, uh, because, uh, because I was taught the value of competence, uh, I learned by being competent that there's another element to competence. And that is when you see uh, the importance of your competence for your community, you become accountable. So competence and accountability go hand in hand. In hand. Now what has happened, mind you, uh, I didn't see television until I was about 15. Uh, with the advent of television, uh, The emphasis shifted from direct experience to indirect experience. Yes, the broadcast media. Jordan Hall talks experience. a lot about this. Yeah. Children spent more time reading books than they did farming. You know, More time on television, learning things from television, which is a whole other subject, than they learned from direct experience. Now, what happened was that if you... People of my generation are utterly appalled at the loss of general competence. Most people can't change the tire on their car, much less the oil. Uh, and this reason is because there has been so much emphasis placed on indirect experience. And now with these devices, uh, I, I, I'm, really, I'm really frightened to see 
how little these kids experience. I mean, you know, uh, older people, were, we were outside all, all day long, every day after school, rain or shine. I had, a, I had a campsite up in the woods and I used to would go there with my dog and pony and have a fire. And, uh, none of that is going on today. And uh, this loss of direct experience and competence makes people more vulnerable to the bullshit they're being fed as part of their acculturation. So you've got the combination of those things. So one of the things that has to happen is you have to stop people. Uh, one of the things that I teach and it will be part of 10 syllables is what is this person saying? What do they mean by it? And what am I going to do about it? You got to stop, look and listen and challenge yourself to submit to that discipline before your response as part of your interpretation and before your response, because uh, I, 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 I can't watch uh, television anymore, except Netflix movies. Uh, and even those are so violent and, and full of sex uh, that they're not pleasing to me anymore. But certainly, uh, Network television is just nonsense. It's oh just <clears throat> right. Can, uh, can I tell you a story? I actually got. I went to the barber yesterday to get a, get my hair cut. Right, and I'm sitting in the barber chair, and they got a uh, what was it? Um, that show with Neil Patrick Harris, whatever that that sitcom. And they're like they're watching it, and they're like ha ha, and they're like commenting, and I'm watching it. I'm like I feel my soul dying while watching because I, I can't believe they watched this. And it wasn't even from like a judgmental point of view so much. It was like, this is like, this is so like, they're like, uh, uh, they're like effective robots. It's like, I, I couldn't take it. And like this dovetails, uh, you know, nicely what we were talking about before where like everyone's just becoming uh, passive observers to the spectacle of COVID. They're just yeah, like, you know, everyone's sitting in their home like, ooh, what are the numbers? This, ooh, all this drama, right? And as I said earlier, the, uh, the, the leadership hierarchy learned a little bit about psychology and a great deal about mass communication technology uh, and have decided that they're going to manage us completely. Mm. Uh, I just ran across a book the other day uh, about the, the CIA's involvement in the publishing business. Mm. They are everywhere and you don't know which books they've financed and which books they've kept out of print. Uh, and uh, they're equally uh, pervasive in Hollywood. Now, this thing that's going on in Hollywood is a really interesting symptom of, uh, 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 of the extent to which we have devolved this uh, pederasty issue. <laughs> oh, my God. Preach, uh, Robin, preach. You know, I, I, I don't want to talk about pederasty per se, but I, I want to point out that it's probably one of the most heinous crimes uh, in a society, any society that allows its children to be treated as the way, as our society allows our children to be treated. And I'm not just talking about pederasty, I'm talking about education too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Bessie DeVos is not, uh, is not wanting to, uh, uh, to educate integrated people. 
the whole system is trying to avoid that. I mean, think, for example, about uh, any school you've ever, or college, any school or college you've ever heard of who taught self-understanding and personal integration. Exactly. None. They and teach these, skills to right. be a cognitive machine. They don't tell you to be autonomous. And think, please. So, so we, have this, we have this glaring symptom of the underlying decay in our society in pederasty, and yet they cannot solve any of the crimes. We know nothing about Epstein, who flew on his plane. We don't even know where his money came from or what the circumstances were. We know nothing. I, I read somewhere that 80 children were discovered a week or so ago. 80 children 80. Who, had been, who had been picked up. Uh, something like a half a million children disappear in this country every year. And we have not chosen to solve that problem. I mean, uh, I just saw a, a, a documentary. It's actually on YouTube. If you search for it, it's called Out of Shadows. It's, it's a stuntman who like oh, yeah, got... Seen that. Oh, yeah, you saw it? Oh, so for uh, the audience, he was a Hollywood stuntman. He was one of the biggest stuntmen in Hollywood. And he was doing, you know, he was working with all these uh, Hollywood stars. And one day he like got a really bad injury and he was working with his physical therapist and his physical therapist said, Hey, is it okay if I pray for you? And the stuntman was like, okay, fine, whatever. I'm not into that, but go ahead. And then she kept doing it. And then one day he was like, why do you keep doing this? Like, do you really believe in this stuff? She's like, she was like, honey, if you've seen what I've seen happen to these kids in Hollywood and I have to come and fix them, you would pray too for all the evil that's going on. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> so yeah, there, I mean, we've heard, I mean, I'm sure anyone who's dug into this at all, I mean, they've heard about these pedophile Hollywood stuff, but I mean, like with this Epstein stuff, it's getting super real. And then just like, man, it's, it's just nuts. Uh, so Robin, so like, I just want to uh, go back to what you said about being effective. And like, that's actually one of the reasons why I started this thing, why I'm putting myself out there, why Crazy Albert is, is, is getting out, coming out of a shell and, and talking to important people like you and all these other people is because I was like, like, I realized that like once, like, once I understood myself, I was like, I have a certain set of skills. I have gifts. I'm not normal. But here's the thing, in the coming age, normal is a liability. So I realized, I have these strengths. I have these specific capacities that I, I like and to affect what I want, what we all want. This is better, you know, this beautiful world where none of us are replaceable. I got to go out. I got to start talking. I got to start crazy. I got to start networking. So um, I love that. Um, and uh, if I could just follow it up, because one of the things that really was profound for me and that at first I was like, what is Robin talking about? how your definition of love and your definition of love, uh, hopefully I'm not bastardizing it, is unbiased listening. And I didn't get that at first, right? And I was like, love is listening? But then as we did the course, and then uh, as I listened to you and I was open to you and you listened to me and I even cried on cam, which is embarrassing, but <laughs> it's really important for me. And then it was just like, wow. And then even more possibly importantly, which goes to what you're saying before, that I was able to listen to myself. Cause I said like my goal going into the course was like, 
I want to find out who I am and what I really want. And I was like, and by listening to myself, this unbiased listening, this love of myself, I was able to tap into who I am. I was like, wow. And then I feel this yeah. healing. Yep. And then I feel this emergence of this capacity. And now I'm like, oh, now I know what I want. And I'm doing it right now. Hopefully it doesn't blow up tomorrow. But like, hopefully this is the start of something new. And thank you so much for that, Robin. I just wanted to say. Yeah, well, uh, um, as you know, because you've read, uh, I've, I've been involved in a number of uh, miraculous healings. Mm. Uh, and uh, what they have taught me is a, a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, it's about energy. Healing is about energy mm. and uh, not uh, projected energy, but elicited energy. Uh, I can't heal uh, a creature, but I can elicit the creature's energy, which will heal the creature. Uh, not, and the second thing is you can't do it on demand. Uh, because if you have that as your intention, uh, that corrupts the effectiveness of the eliciting. Uh, and so uh, what I've learned from those experiences is that we're all uh, eliciting or projecting energy with other people and other creatures all the time. And so uh, maybe we should be a little bit more intentional about listening instead of asserting all the time. We come from a, this uh, tribalistic civilization is one that places the emphasis on asserting rather than listening. Uh, and if you look at uh, other civilizations, uh, the American Indians, for example, uh, their whole culture was based on listening to nature and responding as they felt nature was telling them was appropriate. Whereas we are, uh, we are biased into trying to control nature, to assert control over nature. Uh, and so all of us are engaged in this transferal of energy both ways. Uh, but I don't think most people realize that they are healing other people when they listen to them. And if they can listen to them with an absence of bias, such that they don't continually interpret what they're hearing, they just listen to it, that is much more powerful elicit, eliciting energy and is much more healing. Whether it's uh, your dog, uh, your students, your wife, your children, uh, this comes back to uh, this question of stopping uh, and asking yourself, what is this person saying? Why are they saying it? And what am I going to do about it? I mean, you do that three or four times. Really, it doesn't take that long. You do that a few times and you get that your job is to sit down, shut up and listen. And that it has miraculous effects on those around you, on yourself, as you pointed out. And that's what's, gonna, that's what's going to enable us to heal the world. Because uh, one of the things we all have to do is process and resolve. If you don't resolve things, 
you carry them forward in their unresolved state and they uh, build this huge weight on your psyche and on your perceptual uh, processes and on your interpretations. Uh, they, they, they clog you up. And so we all have to process and resolve continually so that we put things behind us and we don't have to carry them forward in their unresolved state. Uh, uh, and, how, and, and if we remind ourselves of that, then, then the prescription, what we are to do about it, both within ourselves and with others, is to listen to them. Because when you listen, you will elicit their processing. And when they process, they resolve whether it's uh, in the conventional therapeutic, psychotherapeutic uh, relationship uh, or with the Acadia flycatcher in Maine. Uh, that's how it works. And that, uh, again, is, uh, uh, is the opposite of our bias in modern society. You know, how much have we listened uh, to Gaia, to Mother Earth? We, we, we refuse to listen. How much are we listening to the, the children in our society? We are refusing to listen. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, what your gift, I mean, thank you so much because this is exactly what society needs. We're not listening to each other. And hopefully with this show, whatever this becomes, I could practice these skills and I can help listen and help the world heal. So. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm taking, I'm taking the torch, uh, Robin, please. I mean, thank you so much for, for, for everything. And so, I mean, I mean, let's, I mean, we're going to wrap this up pretty soon. I know we've been on for a long, you said, I, I only do this for like 44 minutes, please, Robin, you got so much. So let's just close it off with uh, a few, a few more questions, a few more explorations. So I also know like who or what inspires you? Like uh, you said some people that you already like your future teachers, but who or what currently inspires you in this world? Um, that's an interesting question. The first thing that pops to mind is that I am inspired by the people I listen to. Because when you listen to people without bias, they blossom. My wife uh, is an extraordinary, extraordinarily effective physician. She works with veterans at the VA uh, as a psychiatrist. And uh, she always has made art. And about 10 years ago, she said, what, what would I think if she went back and got an MFA uh, on the uh, uh, go two weeks, twice a year program? Uh, and I said, absolutely, got to do it. Well, she said, it's going to cost, I don't know, 30 grand or something. Never mind that. You got to do it. And so that was, I was listening and responding to her initiative, which she probably knew on some level. I would respond that way. Anyway, so she goes back and gets an MFA and uh, becomes increasingly involved with making art and uh, is becoming increasingly more successful as an artist and more successful as a psychiatrist 
because she's got both that right brain and the left brain plugged in her life. Uh, and so what, what she does is uh, she works long hours, gets home seven or eight o'clock at night and uh, leaves at uh, five or six in the morning. And uh, when she gets home, she, uh, she might sit in her chair and work on an art project. She might uh, mother our, our daughter. Uh, despite all of that, when I say to her, Alex, I got to talk to you about something and I need your full attention. The quality of attention I get is astounding. There is nobody on earth that I trust, whose judgment I trust more than my wife. And I take some of, some of the credit for that because I have listened to her and elicited her and responded to her so that she's, she's full on. I can tell she's full on. She teaches. She teaches these Harvard Medical School psychiatrists, uh, interns, and, uh, uh, and when she's teaching them, she walks. They walk. She walks eight or 10 miles a day, my wife. Uh, she's lost 40 pounds. She's looking like a teenager again. Uh, for your audience, my wife is 25 years younger than I am. <laughs> of course, I mean, like, I already told the audience, you got kids like freaking like over here, 16. It's like, she's the still playing the, the field. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah, my friends to whom my daughter is the same way as, as her mother. Uh, I, I, my daughter has 16 years old, has extraordinary judgment. I would trust her judgment ahead of most people's. So the people who most move me are uh, my first response is the people that I've listened to. And my second response is, uh, and I, I count you in this group. Oh, wow. Thank you. The abnormal, the not normal, the outsiders, those who are, those who, are, you know, as, as the great philosophers and, and psychiatrists and psychologists have been, uh, those who are willing to take an alternative perspective and try it out, you know, take the risks and learn and grow. Uh, those people tend to be pretty fulfilled in their lives. Mm. Oh, here's an anecdote. I, when I ran the mental health clinic, I, 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 I really didn't know anything about psychology. Uh, but I was given the job of evaluating the psychotherapists in the clinic, uh, of which there were 35 or 40. And I didn't know how to do that. And finally, uh, I had studied Abraham Maslow, the great Brandeis psychologist. And uh, I don't know whether you know who he was, but he, he yep, studied absolutely. mental health instead of mental illness. And he... Uh, coined the phrase self-actualization. And he said that the people who were the most self-actualized were the most productive, most effective, and most fulfilled. And so I took his, uh, his qualities of self-actualized people, and I put them across the top of a 13-column accounting sheet 
and I took the names of the therapists and put them down the vertical column, and I subjectively evaluated each of them in accordance with Maslow's qualities of self-actualized people, assigned them an arbitrary grade. And at the end, I let a lot of therapists go and kept maybe half. And the ones I kept were unfailingly more productive. They, uh, they got through therapy with their patients. They got more referrals. They were happier and they were more fulfilled in their, they were the, they were the psychotherapist. This is a good lesson for anybody thinking about choosing a psychotherapist. The psychotherapists that I evaluated who were the most effective psychotherapists were the people who least needed to be a psychotherapist. Hmm. So who are my guides? Uh, the people who least need to be my guide, who aren't beating me over the head to believe some dogma, hmm. who uh, simply will, uh, if I say I need your attention full on, they can give it to you because they're fulfilled. You know, they don't have a lot of things distracting them. So there's, there's the answer to that question. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. Uh, thanks so much, first of all, for including me and people that you admire. It's like, you should... Do you see me compared to you, please? <laughs> but it's very, it's more than mutual. I mean, I got, I mean, I love you, Robin. I mean, thank you for being the first guest here and for dropping one of the all-time classic episodes of any podcast ever. This is amazing. I, I, I thought it was wonderful. Uh, would you, were you going to say something? Yeah, I just oh. want to say, Albert, as you know, I told you that I expected that you were going to be a highly successful entrepreneur <laughs> because you are compelled to understand yourself and to get integrated. And you can already, I can already see the benefits of that effort to your effectiveness as an entrepreneur. Awesome. So good luck. Thank, thank you so much for your belief in me. I don't know if I quite believe it yet. Like I said, like in this game B world, I don't know, even know, like entrepreneur, I don't know, maybe I'll do something, but I, I really appreciate your support. Thank you. And I thought it was beautiful. I talked about the reciprocal uh, opening uh, with, uh, yourself and your wife, how by listening to her intently, you open up her capacity to listen to you. And it just, it just, you know, it just grows from that. And also this, this left right brain dichotomy, which people like you, me and your wife all reject. She's a, you know, like psychiatrist slash artist. You're an artist. You got, I saw those wonderful award-winning sculptures. I'm going to link to them. Uh, those are amazing. And I don't know, like I could do both too. Uh, I mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm just crazy. I'm beyond left, right. I'm just insane, but in a good way for the most part. Um, so yeah, I mean, so a final question is given to you. Ask me anything you want. What is one question that you would ask me and I'll answer as truthfully as I can? Well, I, I first want, I, I, I want to ask you to keep me involved in your activities. Absolutely. I, I want to know what you're doing and with whom, because uh, I'm sure that you're going to turn me on to some wonderful growth opportunities. And I look forward to it. I mean, uh, I told you to go to the STOA. Come on, Robin. I, 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 I will. Yeah, okay, good, good. I will. Uh, uh, did you want me to make an observation or ask you a question? Uh, just wh whatever you feel your, is a lot for you. Um, well, yeah. 
What fulfills you? What fulfills me? Uh, right now, talking well, to you. Right now, in general. In general. What fulfills me? I want to create a world where no one has to suffer. Like, that's basically what it is. I mean, like, I'm almost an extremist in that case. Like, I'm almost, I'm, like, in the past, I've been like an antinatalist. How do we get rid of suffering? Oh, make sure there is nothing that can't suffer. But then I came to the realization, okay, the universe is going to go on without me. I could, like, press a button and, like, blow up the entire world, but there's still going to be life. There's still going to be conscious beings, sentient beings. It's like, okay, I got to grow up and be like, there's going to be suffering in the world. And I can't just expect to get rid of it by just, just, just stopping so, by, by, by blowing everything up. What I have to do is I got to be part of this ongoing process where we create a world. We create a world. Not that we destroy the world so there's no suffering. We create the world where there's no suffering. And it goes beyond that. Create a world where people feel beauty and connection and harmony and they, they feel fulfilled. So I realized that's what I'm here for. I have no idea if it's gonna happen. I have no idea if anything's gonna happen. I could be hit by a bus tomorrow, but as long as I'm here, I'm gonna try and I'm willing to make a fool out of myself in the process. So that is what fulfills me. Yes. Awesome, thank you so much, Robin. Amazing episode. I mean, even better than I thought, the people are gonna love this. Uh, so do you have any final thoughts or anything you'd like to say to the audience? Um, uh, I, I, I would only say to your previous comment, uh, I have come to uh, understand with the Hindus uh, that the universe doesn't care what you do or I do. Uh, the universe is not interested in right and wrong. Uh, and that means that uh, whatever you do, Albert, and whatever we do, we should do for the doing of it, as Gandhi said, attending to the means, uh, not so much because of what we may achieve as uh, because of how fulfilled we may become. Uh, and it is, ironically, through modeling that quality of fulfillment that we probably have the most profound effect on each other. Amazing, Robin. Okay. I mean, uh, are there any links, resources that you'd like to give to your audience? How can we learn more about the great Robin Lever? This is my email address. And oh, I mean, your, your website. You mean My website. Yes, yeah, Robert Lever. is my son's website. I, we're both Robert O. Lever, but my website just says robertlever.com. He put the O in for himself. And my son is, his website is far better than mine. <laughs> He's far more interesting than I am. I mean, your website's pretty cool too. And uh, also, uh, uh, just for the podcast listeners, that's robertlever.com, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-A-V-E-R.com. And his son's website, which he states is even more amazing than his, Robert O, the letter O, lever.com. Yes. And also, uh, uh, how about uh, tensyllables.org? Uh, would you like to direct them there as well too? Uh, that, there, we have the website, but we haven't finished it yet. So it's in, under construction. 
I'll, uh, if you, if your viewers, uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, uh, contact me on Facebook and I'll see to it that you get the address for 10 syllables when it's up. Okay. Awesome. So, uh, um, so I'm going to ask you for those links after the show and I'll make sure to put all those links, uh, in the show notes again, first episode of no, no, nomads comes to a close. I feel like this is a success. Hopefully, uh, the audience enjoyed it. Hopefully, Robin, I mean, you were able to express even a small modicum of your thoughts. And again, thank you so much for coming in today. Peace out, everybody. See you next time. And step up because the world needs you. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> All right, we're done.